Hi, Shalom. Welcome again to Seekers of Meaning, the podcast arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. I'm your host, Rabbi Richard Address, and you can reach me uh, with suggestions and ideas for the and comments on the podcast at Rabbi Address at JewishSacredAging.com. We welcome you and we thank you again for joining us. Um, today, a very, very serious subject, uh, something that is continuing to be in the news, sadly, and we're going to explore some aspects of this, uh, the issue of suicide and post-trauma with suicide. So we welcome to uh, the Seekers of Meaning microphones, uh, Rabbi Dan Roberts and Dr. Melinda Moore, uh, who have collaborated on two volumes, uh, The Suicide Funeral or Memorial Service and the second volume after The Suicide Funeral. So welcome, Dan. Welcome, Melinda. Welcome to the Seekers of Meaning podcast. I hope this finds you well and safe (laughs) and healthy. Uh, Good to be with you, Richard. Thank you for joining us. Uh, nice to see you again, Danny. And uh, Dr. Moore, Melinda, welcome. Welcome. Um, these are two very, very um, fascinating little volumes. But I want to start off with a question that, um, as I was reviewing this and preparing for today, it, it just keeps coming up because we're running into this uh, in my work in Jewish Sacred Aging, but also as a grandfather of uh, two teenagers and two people in about to enter in, in middle school. Uh, and we keep reading these incidents, these rises in suicide across the generations. So I think the basic and probably very basic layman's question is what the heck is going on? Yeah, you, you've asked a really important question. Um, and I think a lot of public health planners are also trying to figure this out. But we know that young people have always been one of the higher risk groups. So it's not so much uh, a recent phenomenon, uh, maybe as a result of the pandemic or, you know, lockdown or whatever, but I think it's something we're we're hearing more about, uh, we're more aware of, because there's just been more discussion around the problem of suicide, broadly speaking. But we know that people um, about 15 to 24 years of age are considered to be one of the higher risk groups in this country. Well, you know, there's a lot of grandparents who are going to be listening and watching this because that's basically our demographic. And uh, we are aware of uh, in the pandemic and isolation and loneliness, et cetera. And we know the statistics about uh, older adult men who commit suicide. And sometimes, you know, it's an automobile accident that's really suicide. But this, this is, it's extremely troubling. I, I, let me just jump in. What can a grandparent do with it, with, with young people, uh, teenagers? Are there, are there warning signs that, that we may look for for our 16 year old or 15 year old? And if so, can you just elu- elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. You know, so I tell everybody we've got these warning signs and, and risk factors but they really don't tell us anything about prospective risk. So the most important thing you can do is if your grandchild just seems like they're not themselves, they're not acting like themselves, they're not talking like themselves, they're maybe not engaging in things that are things that they would have previously been involved in, say, hey, you know, I've noticed that something seems to be off with you. Are you having thoughts of suicide? I mean, not being scared to say the word and saying, you know, if you're not having thoughts of suicide, I would want to know because I can help you get help. And then I think it's really important to be 
um, an active listener in that moment and not be too judgy or too, um, oh, don't do that or that would hurt your parents or whatever. But I think just being an empathic listener to whatever it is that they're experiencing. Go ahead. Go ahead, Dan. No, I was just going to say that that I think somewhat has to do with uh, social media. I think it has somewhat to do with harassment for younger kids in the schools. Um, And, uh, I mean, we went through it with notebooks at one time that got passed around. Now it's, you know, it's so prevalent. So I think Melinda is correct with asking about suicide, asking, you know, about depression, asking about harassment, you know, is this going on in the school, and bringing it up so that you sound like you are somebody who that they could talk to. I mean, the audacity of asking, are you thinking about suicide, is not audacity. It simply says, I'm a, I'm a listener. Well, I mean, to, to understand it from the Jewish tradition of pikuach nefesh and saving a life, to, to raise this issue even from the bima, as some of our colleagues have done, um, you potentially saving a life, at least uh, uh, letting a person perhaps know that there is a safe place for well, someone to I, talk I to. I do believe that in um, uh, confirmation classes, and I'll take that, is a place to talk about death, dying, and bereavement, yeah. and then bringing parents in. And talking about, you know, I once had a, and still do, have a video out called Inside I Ache, um, which talks, uh, but it's a, it's a conversation starter is what it is. Well, so you, so that leads me to the, the discussion of this first book, The Suicide Funeral Memorial Service. And it, this is really targeted to clergy, correct? Uh, correct. It, 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 and, and well, inter- the original. Orig- Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, no, the original intent was for clergy and seminarians. And I worked many years ago with Rabbi, uh, uh, Rabbi, not Rabbi, I'm sorry, That's Reverend right. James Clemens. And then everybody's Reverend a Dan, rabbi. Rabbi Dan, Dan, Dan Roberts. Yeah, everybody's a rabbi. of God. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he really thought that there was a need for um, a book for clergy because he told me many years ago, that it was one of the hardest things a clergy member had to do. And then, of course, Rabbi Dan has affirmed that it's one of the hardest things that a clergy member has to do. But we've realized that this book has really been helpful for suicide bereaved people of faith. Um, Clergy have not embraced it as we would have liked for them to, but certainly people of faith who are suicide bereaved have really found it to be helpful to understand it from a faith perspective. Because there's almost nothing to help suicide bereaved people, uh, help them understand their experience of loss from a faith perspective. So in, in this book, you, you, there's a, it's an interfaith. I think everybody needs to know that it's not just the Jewish, right? It really speaks to the interfaith. Talk to me about some of the challenges or differences that you perhaps have picked up in creating this book between different faith traditions and how they may, as a clergy person, not as a layperson, but as a clergy person, deal with this phenomenon of, of suicide. And just whoever wants to speak first. <laughs> I, you know, it, it, I'm not sure which book we're talking about. So, But the memorial book, the, the suicide funeral, we give all kinds of suggestions, uh, uh, text that could be used. Um, and the idea of, well, what do you have to do to interview people? 
but most importantly, that it should be a word that is brought up in the suicide funeral, that it is a suicide and it's not a, a way to get to, to the next world, uh, faster because we're worried about contagion equally as well in that book. So it is a book that is cross faith, um, that anybody could pick up and find out for themselves as they get through this very, very difficult moment in their life. I mean, being a clergy person and doing a suicide funeral takes your guts out, is what it means. Yeah, Danny, what do you mean by, Danny, what do you, you use the word contagion. Unpack that for me. What do you mean by contagion? Well, the, the big issue in um, uh, school systems and friends, and particularly of younger kids, one sees it, the kid got at 15 minutes of fame, you know, I'm feeling the same way. And, I, I, you know, I'll get my 15 minutes worth of fame. And then, unfortunately, they dream that they'll come back to life again. And everybody will be sorry that it ever happened. But they don't realize it's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And you're in, in both of your experiences in, in practicality and then in putting the books together. Um, when you're doing that funeral and you're counseling that family as a result of the suicide, uh, is it less prevalent now to code language the at, at the funeral that you don't say the word suicide? I remember one family, uh, it, it just stuck out unbelievable. They, they created this sort of like, uh, not fantasy, that's the wrong word. They created a story. But the reality is, uh, this person committed suicide. But they nobody Rich, wanted to Rich, really. Can I stop speak you for it. one minute and and get yeah. you away from the C word, the commitment word? So the the pra uh, practical usage now is they died by suicide, suicide by their own hand. So, so I'm gonna uh, get you away from that word. But the the fact is that what we're suggesting is that you don't code it so that people don't think that it didn't happen because everybody's going to guess and everybody is going to w skirt around the elephant in the room. And what we're saying in that book and in the next one, you know, to bring it out, to, to admit, let me find a way of new meaning out of life. So you alluded to the quote, the next book, unquote. So that, book after the suicide funeral um melinda you in that book um we talk about trauma and we talk about i think the phrase that i wrote down is faith as a survival modality faith as a survival modality what does that mean yeah well it's one of the many modalities but it's a powerful modality that we don't talk about and certainly in psychotherapy you know, and I'm, I'm coming out of a science background. I'm a, I'm a clinical psychologist. I've been steeped in the science around suicide. But oftentimes what happens when the worst happens to a family, when they lose a loved one, a cherished child or spouse or parent, um, they oftentimes don't know how to think about this, how to cope with this. It's a traumatic event. And uh, in any other circumstance, people might, uh, say, uh, you know, uh, how am I going to make, how am I going to make it through this? 
and I might rely upon faith. In my profession, for too long, we have been hostile to faith. We've been rejecting of faith. And what Rabbi Dan and I are saying in this book is that faith is a powerful tool for um, circumnavigating any kind of difficult experience. But when the worst happens, and we really both believe as suicide bereaved people ourselves, that this is one of the worst traumas that can happen to an individual, to a family, that thinking about embracing your faith as a way of surviving it, and also perhaps at some point in time down the road to provide some meaning to the changes that are created within you. So, you know, all is not lost. While we can't bring back our loved one, there are things that we can do that are powerful and meaningful in our lives as a result of the changes that are created within us because of this loss. And so that's kind of what we mean by by the uh, invoking of faith in this book. Yeah, go ahead, Dan. You wanted well, so to- ma- no, so many people have um, used faith as a tool to get them where they are, and then suddenly when there's a loss by suicide, that they suddenly think that God didn't do what, you know, the cosmic God I want to do, and they give up on using this tool. And so what we're saying is a return to hope, a return to the fact my imagery is Jacob walking away uh, from the Jabbok River, and he's limping, but he also was blessed. And now we now need to find out even though we're going to limp the rest of our life, what is the blessing that is going to come out of this? So, so I go ahead. Now, so are you saying that there, that even in this trauma, there can, someone can emerge with hope? Absolutely. Uh, And find new meaning. I, I will use myself since my dad died by his own hand. The fact that I never would have ended up in the rabbinate if my dad had lived. I mean, he was a, a hard, owned a hardware store in a small little city in Ohio. And because of his death and the trauma that I went through, and for the years I can never say anything about it during that, at that time, how my dad died. But I ended up in the rabbinate. And, um, and it led me to doing thanatological work and writing on suicide and so forth. I'm a blessed person, but I certainly didn't think of it back then. But, you know, I am a different person. And I just want to encourage anybody going through this that they could walk walk away or limp away, I would like to use the imagery, and, and end up doing things that they never would have thought that they had, would have done. But uh, Melinda, as a as a therapist, and you write a little bit, and and I think one of the essays about trauma, and um, it's a word that we're hearing more and more of now, uh, especially in the last twenty years since we we've never really dealt with the trauma of nine eleven, and we certainly haven't dealt with the trauma of COVID. At least I don't think so. Um, Unpack that word for me and how you, how you both are relating that word and concept to suicide. Yeah. So trauma are both psychological, physical, you know, spiritual, uh, repercussions of untoward events that occur in our lives. 
And, you know, you just mentioned 9-11. I would say the Holocaust, you know, is a trauma, worldwide trauma that we've still not dealt with, really. You know, so we've got lots of traumas, worldwide traumas, but then we also have personal traumas. So, you know, we hear a lot about child abuse, domestic violence, um, the effects of the opioid crisis in our country. You know, these create all sorts of individual family traumas. And um, when a suicide occurs, and usually what we know from the new science around suicide is that it's usually a constellation of things. There's not one particular reason why people, why an individual will die by suicide or attempt suicide. It's usually a constellation of things. It's very complicated and there are many roads to Rome. But when that occurs in a family, we know that, or in a community, we know that for every person who dies by suicide, there are about 135 people who are exposed to that death. And then of that 135, there are about 48 individuals who feel close or very close to that individual. And it's though it's that perception of closeness that really Im- it predicts the impact of that death. And that can be a traumatic impact, which can cause higher levels of depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, and suicide attempt. So it's a suicide is one of those traumatic events that actually begets more suicide and more potential trauma. And so I think what we're trying to do here is recognize the trauma of suicide loss on the community, on the friends, on the family, on the people who feel close to that individual, but then also at the same time trying to help them understand that there have been lots of traumas that have impacted the world. Well, yeah, but the, for, the, the reality you know, Melinda, is that traumas happen each and every day in our lives. No, it's so it's the it's the yes. chaos that yes. suddenly comes what you hope is an ordered world. And some people can deal with it, you yes. know, and are, some are thrown by little traumas having been built upon. But it is the picking up ourselves up and trying to go on and finding new meaning. Most of us do it every day and we're fine. But great traumas, you know, the death of, of somebody. Um, think of all the soldiers coming home. We haven't even talked about uh, the uh, suicide among uh, the veterans. Which is astronomical, and, and the military is dealing with. Um, but that's the loss of somebody that you feel close to, and so forth. So um, this is the trauma of all traumas. I mean, you start from point zero in morning, and you you got to ramp up after that. But most importantly, that um, I lost my train of thought. Uh, the the fact that um, you feel responsible. You feel guilty. I should have done it, could have done it, should have known, and all the other kind, which adds to this trauma that other traumas don't have. Is there a lot of... Tra- well, suicide's different because of this. So it's unlike any other cause of death. Other causes of death, you, know, you can point to cancer or you can say they died of a heart attack. But with suicide, it's different because the person does it to themselves. And inherently in that is some suggestion that the people who cared and loved them and felt close to them perhaps could have intervened or done something 
or they oftentimes look to themselves and say, what did I do wrong? What did I and not then do? It's, then it's a rejection. And because of that. Yeah, it's a rejection, too, of me. You know, why do they want to leave me? Mm-hmm. You got that as well. Like, could they have, they could have just divorced me. They didn't have to kill themselves, you know, or they could have just left home or whatever. But I think that's the unique thing about suicide and why another thing we're wanting to make the point is that suicide is different than other causes of death. And we, we have to really look at it, uh, acknowledge it, acknowledge the trauma of it, but also recognize that there are things that people can do to not just pick themselves up the ground, but they can actively do to facilitate this potential for growth in the aftermath of this traumatic event. Such as what can, well, somebody, what can people do? <laughs> I mean, I, you know, one of the things we can do is you can do therapy, but you don't necessarily need a therapist. I mean, I think if we had clergy who were more uh, aware, informed of the potential for growth in the aftermath of such a traumatic event as suicide, they would be, there would be an incredible opportunity to grow spiritually. I mean, it changed my career. My husband died uh, in 1996 from suicide, and I was in the medical field, but I was headed in a totally different direction, had no interest in clinical psychology. And it wasn't until I had this, uh, this loss, this really traumatic loss, that I began investigating suicide. And I got involved in suicide prevention. And as a result, I ended up getting a PhD in clinical uh, psychology and became a suicidologist. So it changed my my career trajectory in a profound way, but it also changed me spiritually. But the people around me, so I was a new Catholic at the time, they really didn't know how to talk to me about it. And this is why this part about listening, even if a clergy member doesn't really know how to think about suicide or they're questioning their faith's policy around suicide, they can't really answer the question, where is my loved one? I still think listening to the suicide bereaved person and helping them feel not alone in that that walk and 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 their maybe frustration with God, their disappointment in what's happened, but helping them also recognize the fact that whatever their practice of faith is can be an incredible strength and support for them as they as they clergy, move through this clergy experience. Clergy are in the business of hope. You know, if you Think about what prayer is and, and, and its resilience as well. So, uh, the clergy have an opportunity to give something that a lot of others can't get anywhere else. So, can I, can I, yeah, so, go ahead. So, Dan, so let me, let me ask you, uh, you, cause you keep, you guys are talking about the clergy and the books are obviously, uh, that's one of the major, or, uh, we know from, uh, I teach in a couple of seminaries. Um, if I'm a clergy person listening to this, regardless of the denomination, where do I go if I want to get some additional training? Because in most of the seminaries that I'm familiar with, there's no class in, okay? Uh, it, it, where do I go? Well, you're so lucky because this summer on Monday, June 26th and Tuesday, June 27th, we're actually going to have a national clergy conference at my university, at Eastern Kentucky University. And we're going to be talking about this very subject from an ecumenical perspective. How do communities and congregations address suicide from a faith perspective? Not only how do we create capacity within faith communities to do suicide prevention, 
But then how do we help those individuals who are left behind in the wake of suicides? And then Rabbi Dan is actually going to do something on how do you conduct a funeral for somebody who's died by suicide? And then how do you help the family and the friends in the aftermath and do aftercare? So we're doing trainings. We've done this for the last couple of years. But in terms of uh, formal training, there's almost nothing out there. There's an opportunity for clergy who are interested in this subject. Plus, to step up yeah. and perhaps develop Plus, clergy also have to avail themselves. There's CAMS training almost in every state. And, uh, you know, there are many um, suicide prevention. And they offer training to all people about how you could sit and talk with somebody and, and even bring up the subject. Are you thinking of, of taking your own life? You know, what means and what are you doing? And, you know, and then even getting rid of, um, the weapons or or pills or whatever else. So there is training out there. Uh, clergy just have to think that it's a priority, and that although it may never occur in a the life of a or the career of a clergy person, they better be ready if it should happen. Well, well, let me let me get back to this the uh, training session yep. at, at Eastern Kentucky. Right? Is that where you, is that where you mm-hmm. are? Okay, so is this yeah. in-person, hybrid, or just virtual? It's going to be hybrid. We're going to have in-person participation, and then we're going to also have an opportunity for even, people to participate. Even better, Bison. it's free. Okay, let me, couple, couple, couple well, let, let me get to this, because this is important stuff, okay? Mm-hmm. What are the dates? What are the dates? It's Monday, June 26th, and Tuesday, June 27th. It's two days of training. It's it's, in Eastern Kentucky University, which is in Richmond, Kentucky, about 20 miles southeast of Lexington, Kentucky. You can fly in, you can drive in, or you can zoom in. And according to what Danny's saying, there's no cost, right? Uh, That is to be determined. We may have to be charging a small charge because there will be food available for those in person. Uh, We're actually putting the conference together right now. But I can tell you right now, it's going to be the best of the best in terms of training for clergy. It's going to be a clergy who are working at the intersection of faith and suicide prevention training clergy. Okay, and, so and it's ecumenical. So we've got a broad range of faith perspectives uh, represented. The books are available through Amazon uh, bookstores, or they're all online. Tell me about that real fast. Through Amazon or through our publisher, Whip and Stock. Oh, okay, very good. Um, one last question, because it really follows up on the. On the conversation we've been having about trauma, the impact of trauma, there's this wonderful line in the After the Suicide Funeral book, which I think I, I just want to close with this. It goes like this, quote, like a garden, post-traumatic growth takes patience and time, unquote. What does that mean? Well, <laughs> somebody. It means that the the eventual where you're going to end up, you don't know. You just you are going to end up as Jacob did. You know, he ends up with a different name and blessed. Well, how does that blessing come out? You know, how did his life end up as Yisrael? He's a different person with a different name now. And I would only say that anybody going through this, 
you will be different if you allow yourself. You know, there's one beautiful imagery. If you don't build a, a hut in the middle of the, uh, the Golden Gate Bridge, you get to the other side. And if you get there, you will find that you are a different person, maybe a better person than you ever would have been, but you won't be the same person just as Jacob walked away with a limp. And it takes time, as you're alluding to, and I would imagine from both the spiritual and clinical perspective, um, one size doesn't fit all, and that every person's individual journey is unique to that individual, and it has to be uh, judged by your own individual universe of experience. Victor Frankl reminds else's. us that you have to have a meaning to your life. Great book, and Search for Meaning. Rabbi Dan Roberts, uh, Dr. Melinda Moore, thank you very much for joining us uh, today on this very important conversation about uh, suicide and uh, aftermath and clergy and ritual and the whole, uh, this whole, as I said, um, universe that surrounds this and not being afraid to talk about it and not being afraid to raise it from the pulpit and not being afraid to teach it. So all of you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rich, for doing this. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you again for joining us on today's edition of Speakers of Meaning, the podcast arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. Uh, our, our thanks to our producer, Steve Lebeckin, because these podcasts are recorded at the offices and Lebeckin Media in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thank you, Steve. We look forward to seeing you on our next speakers of meeting. And that in the meantime, take care, stay safe, be healthy, and be kind to one another. Thank you. <laughs>